0: From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are The Ross Files. In 2018, there were about 550 murders in Chicago, which is actually down from previous years. But Chicago has certainly gotten a reputation as being, at least south and west sides, as a pretty dangerous place to live. And I think we tend to... Write off these neighborhoods as a lost cause. I think that Alex Kotlowitz's book will change your mind. It's called An American Summer. This is his latest book on, on Chicago. And tell me first of all how, how did you get interested in this? Yeah, well, so I'm
1: you know I've been in Chicago now for thirty five years, and so my first exposure to the kind of profound poverty in Chicago and elsewhere was. When I was working on my first book uh, almost 30 years ago, uh, There Are No Children Here, mm-hmm. when I was spending time in the projects. Um, but for me, the thing that's been most perplexing and most unsettling is the uh, stubborn persistence of the violence in our city and other cities. Um, so this book was an effort both to try to make sense of that and really sort of I think one of the things we've made the mistake of doing is sort of underestimating the impact of the violence on the spirit of individuals and the spirit of community.
0: Well, reading this, it sounds like there are entire neighborhoods suffering from collective PTSD. The the people you describe in this book have the same symptoms as people who come back from Iraq.
1: Right. No, there's no question about it. I mean, you see, you know, uh, especially young people who are extraordinarily agitated, have trouble sleeping, they self-medicate, they... Uh, um, uh, talk about having flashbacks. Um, I think the big difference, and it's and it's a really notable difference, uh, is that there's nothing post about the post-traumatic stress. In other words, with the you momentum. you lose a friend one day, and the next day you're looking over your shoulder to make sure it doesn't happen again. And, in fact, social workers and therapists working in these communities have this informal term they use to describe it as complex loss.
0: There's a... Um, I'll, I'll just read... This is page 22. This is... Um, what first uh, tipped me off this was not going to be your your usual book about uh, urban violence. As Khalid lay dying, the friend allegedly whispered, "I love you, but I had to do it." This is a guy who shot his friend for fear that the the kid couldn't keep his mouth shut about a murder he witnessed. Right,
1: right. And this, you know, this is not unusual in the city that people um, that one act of violence leads to another act of violence. You know, Khalid witnessed the murder of someone committed by somebody he knew, and Khalid, who was deeply upset and troubled by it, you know, started talking about it in the neighborhood, and he ended up getting killed as as a result. Um, And I think one of the things you see in these communities is this extraordinary level of of fear that exists, and something I think we tend to neglect. You grow up in these communities, and there's not as much sense of protection. Uh, in fact, in, in Chicago, for reasons nobody can quite explain, we have an extraordinarily low closure rate. So you've got a pretty good chance of getting away with murder yeah. in Chicago. Three out of four people get away with get murder. Get away with it. Yeah. And so what that does is erodes any sense of trust between the police and the communities that they're – If part of
0: this is to earn respect, which, which a lot of it seems to be about, Don't you earn respect more just by fighting it out with your fist than by flashing a gun?
1: It certainly used to be the way. I think it has everything to do with the easy accessibility of of, of weapons. You You know, Chicago has got pretty strict gun control laws, but you go over into the outlying parts of the county or into Indiana, and it's extremely easy to get weapons. That's where they're coming from then? Yeah. Yeah, it is, right. And so the Chicago police, I mean, every year they take off the street between 7,000 and 10,000 illegal weapons. It's just this constant river.
0: But then there's also – it isn't just the guns, though. It's the willingness to use them.
1: Right. I think what you see are these um, seemingly minor disputes erupt into something more. Um, And this goes back, I think, to something you alluded to earlier. I mean the commonality of all the violence in Chicago and in all our cities is they happen in deeply distressed neighborhoods, communities in which there's little sense of opportunity, there's little sense of future – People become bitter, resentful, they've, they've lost any sense of self-respect, they don't feel respected, and I'm not justifying it, just trying to understand it, uh, but for many, I think they see this as a way of gaining some respect, um, but people are angry.
0: Is any of it, well, I think there is a feeling among a lot of people that if you make bad choices, uh, don't go to school, Yeah. That's what your life is going to be like you 're going to end up in one of these neighborhoods, but you chose that we we offered you a free education and you didn 't take it, et cetera et cetera right
1: yeah, and for me as a storyteller, you know i mean this gets kind of i think the centripetal force of storytelling is this notion of empathy is trying to understand people, not justify what they do, but to understand mm-hmm. why, as you say, sometimes they make choices that seem kind of self Destructive, and often it's because there aren't choices available. It's because somehow it brings them again some sense of dignity, some sense of respect. Um, And there's no question. It's you know to have a conversation about rebuilding these communities, you've got to have a conversation both of personal responsibility alongside a conversation with collective responsibility. Look, these are neighborhoods that have been completely neglected for many years. I mean, I I wrote there are no children here some thirty years ago, and I can tell you. That for many of these neighborhoods, not only are they not better off, but in some cases they're worse off. What than, should have been done then. Well, we need to invest in these in these communities. I mean,
0: you talk about you know sidewalks, uh, filling the potholes, and, and schools and or, schools, yeah. and
1: better. I mean, the relationship between the police and these communities has completely eroded. You know, we're in a situation in Chicago, of course, in the heels of uh, the shooting of Laquan McDonald by the police. So that the trust is just completely almost disappeared between... But that
0: means... But that that That's why uh, these are so difficult to solve because people don't want to snitch, right? You know,
1: I think there's a kind of myth about that. In fact, there's a story I tell in the book of a young man, Romain, who is... Um, he's shot um, in a case of mistaken... Ident- the shooter's actually shooting somebody else, a young boy pedaling by on his bicycle, and Romain gets shot in the back, and he does something pretty remarkable, which is he identifies the shooter to the police... And over the course of the next year, he's constantly threatened, presumably by friends and family members of the shooter. And a year later, in a very gentrified part of the city, he's going to his work at a store. Somebody comes up behind him and executes him. And there are all these witnesses, and nobody will come forward. You can see why. Right, but it has nothing to do with this no-snitching culture. It's because they're fearful for their lives. They saw what happened to Remain. They're not foolish. And I remember I finally was able to talk to the detective in the case. Everybody knows who the shooter was. And I thought he was going to be upset because of this no-snitch culture. And he, he said, I understand it. These people are afraid. And he said, if I were in their shoes, I'd probably do the same thing.
0: When I read that, it struck me that our judicial system is really not set up to deal with this kind of thing because it requires that a witness identify himself and show up in court. And so obviously he could become the next victim. Is there any way around that? When you you have a case where the police know who did it.
1: Well, again, I think this goes back if if there was a sense of trust with the police, uh, and this is kind of this vicious cycle we're in now, but if there was a sense of trust with the police, then I think people would feel that they'd be protected, that they'd be watched over, mm. and that's not the case. You know, I live in a community, I live just on the, in a community just on the edge of Chicago, and if anything happened untoward in that community and I was afraid, I would go to my police department and I'd feel absolutely protected. I know they'd be keeping yeah. an eye out on me.
0: Well, but also, because, uh, I mean, I live in a place like that too, but I also know there's no gangs there who would come after me. Usually these are, these are uh, crimes committed by individuals, and there's, there's no connection you know, there's no network of people who could hunt you down. Right. But in, in these, you, as you pointed out in this book, you really have no choice but to join a gang right. for self-protection. So right. every that that makes every murder uh, a potential slight that has to be avenged at some point, and 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 there is the mechanism to avenge it, no matter where you are.
1: Right, right. And one of the things I think we see in Chicago, you know, the, with the gangs have completely fractured, and so. When I, again, when 30 years ago when I wrote There Are No Children Here, you know, the gangs, the African American gangs were very hierarchical. They were organized around the drug trade. In fact, I remember when I was reporting on that book and the projects and somebody, and there was about to be a shooting, you'd get warned and you could go into and take cover. Now it's, uh, the gangs have completely fractured. And so it's organized just simply block by block.
0: Are you a little crazy to do this? Because you embedded yourself essentially in these neighborhoods and you are. I think what we would call you now is a uh, a privileged white person, and you're you're uh, getting everybody, uh, all these minorities, to trust you with their stories. How'd you do that? Right.
1: You know, for me, it's a um, it's a two way street. So I'm going. You're right. I'm going out in the world and I'm asking people to entrust me with telling their stories. And so it's incumbent on me when I go out there to try to be as direct and forward with people as I can about what I'm doing. And some of these stories are deeply intimate, you know, not only about victims, but there's a story about somebody who ends up killing someone and tries to find a way to forgive himself for what he did. Um, And so it's, you know, spending time with people. I, you know, I worked on this book for almost six years um, and got to know people you know, in this, in this well, you're usually
0: going to just do it over the summer, right? I, well,
1: yeah, that was my. The book takes place over the course of one summer, and I kind of naively thought, well, this will be a fairly easy book to report. I'll spend a few months reporting, and I can sit down and write. And of course, as I got involved in the lives of these individuals, and their stories began to unfurl, I stayed with them. I mean, they revealed so much more about these people over time. And so, the book, while it's about this one summer, on each date in the summer, you enter a story, and you. You enter on that date, you go hear some of the backstory, and sometimes you move forward in time and then come back. It's like going into this portal.
0: Um, well, you've put a face on these cases that we tend to dis. I mean, I think a lot of people just have just written off Chicago. You know, right. they say the, yeah. another day, another murder. Yeah. But when you, when you hear the people, uh, the lo- about the lives of the people involved, uh, their parents, their siblings, their friends, their fellow gang members, you begin to understand why this is happening.
1: Right, and my hope with this was not only to humanize, but for people to sort of understand what people were up against. You know, there's a story in this book about a a 16-year-old boy who's kind of, on the one hand, hanging out with a gang, and on the other hand, he's a straight-A student. His friends used to call him the stupid smart kid, and he gets shot one day, and he knows that the only way he's going to be able to move forward is to physically remove himself from that neighborhood, and he gets himself into this really jewel of a place, Mercy Home for Boys and Girls, and he's doing great, and he goes home one weekend his junior year and ends up hooking up with some friends and robbing some people of their cell phones and gets into trouble. And so it's about walking this tightrope about trying to sort of navigate this world. And so it's a story about what happens to this young man as he tries to navigate that, this, this stupid smart kid, as they call
0: him. So if you were to come up with a way out for kids who wanted a way out. What would that look like?
1: Well, one of the things to keep in mind, these are communities that are deeply segregated. You know, where Chicago is, you know, and and this is not some historical accident. I mean, when blacks came up during the Great Migration, they were unable to live in parts of the city. And as a result... We're kind of consigned to the south and west sides of Chicago, and that's still the case today. And so I think one of the things we've got to do is once again have that conversation about residential integration, about finding ways to integrate by race in Chicago and elsewhere. We've got to find a way to provide opportunity. I mean, these are – you know, you spend time in these communities, and it's pretty evident life just isn't fair. You know, their schools are are not as good. They're not getting good health care. The police aren't as – Attentive, um, they don't have all the things that others might have in other neighborhoods, and these are communities that are still reeling from the 2008 housing crisis. You know, one of the stories I was uh, spent on one block. You know, there were any point in time there were three to six abandoned properties on that street, and that what that does to a sense of community is really dispiriting. What we have to do is, you know, this is a sort of great American dilemma at the moment: is this growing economic divide, and you see it in all its glory in a place like Chicago, where you're really a tale of two cities. I mean, we f- have to find a way to provide meaningful employment. You know, for for a country that likes to think of itself as so fair and just, you spend time in these neighborhoods and you kind of shake your head and think, well, where have
0: we been? It's not just gun control, though.
1: No. I mean, gun control is a part of it. But listen, the truth of the matter is if tomorrow we suddenly stop producing any more guns, we'd still have 300 million yeah. weapons out there.
0: Do you still keep in touch with the people that you you talk to?
1: Yeah, I do. I many of them. Yeah. I mean, there you know, there's w- one of the stories is of a young man who at the age of 17 in an act of vengeance uh uh shoots and kills a rival gang member and he spends 14 years in prison and when he gets out his his whole life now is to sort of try and is devoted to trying to find a way to forgive himself for what he did. I'm not sure he'll ever get there, but he's actually running one of the most creative and, I think, original violence prevention programs in the city. Um, it's He's trying to undo the damage that he... This is Eddie? Caused Eddie and yeah. yeah. Um, and one of the things that was clear to Eddie, his his brothers both served in the military, and when his one brother came back from Iraq uh, suffering from PTSD, Eddie saw some of himself in his brother, and so he's now got this program where he's providing employment for young men with nothing terribly original about that but he's also requiring that they undergo therapy so that they can begin to sort of grapple with the trauma the PTSD that they've experienced
0: is there any way for the neighborhood itself to rise up and demand something I mean, especially the moms right. in my I have very limited experience you know interviewing gang members but I, I did a, a few stories about him in the in 1980s and what I noticed about about these these tough young kids is that their moms were boss right right if it's It struck me as if if the moms rose up and demanded something, then something would change.
1: Right. Well, they have, in fact. In fact, one of the things that, for me, is so remarkable in the city is you've got probably half a dozen groups of, of really active mothers who have lost children to the violence, who are advocating for gun control, advocating for better schools, some advocating for stricter sentencing. I mean, they are deeply engaged uh, in that community. And I think there's also a myth out there that somehow people in these communities aren't Outraged by what's going on, but you know, you you go, you spend a summer in those neighborhoods, and people are marching and rallying, um, doing what they can to draw attention to what's going on in their community. Listen, I I think we have to find the political will. I mean, that's the the bottom line. Um, at the moment, you know, we're we're a nation that's deeply divided, um, and uh, I think it's become clear to many of us that race still very much matters in this country, and so. You know, until we can sort of begin to really forthrightly confront some of these issues, it's going to continue.
0: Well, race matters, but these these uh, shootings are between people of the same race most of the time. Right.
1: They happen in communities of color, which is why we don't – the rest of us don't pay much attention to it.
0: Well, we don't feel it's our business, right? right? As I, and, and frankly, I, I look at it and I say, I, I don't know how you did it because I don't know how I would be able to – as somebody who grew up in you know Westchester County, completely – white jewish area uh few italians how could i possibly relate to this what what, what do i know
1: about but, it but that's the thing is you go and spend time with in these communities with these individuals and there's so much that we have in common i mean they have the same dreams and aspirations as the rest of us i mean there's they're struggling with many of the same things the rest of us struggle with, you know, families that are one way or another dysfunctional, you know, with trying to maintain uh, some sense of financial security. I mean, we're, that's sort of, again, for me, this kind of great American paradox is that we, you know, we like to think we're all in this together and yet we lead such disconnected lives. But th- they're my neighbors.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I would, for a lot of these arguments, were about uh, you know money to get the latest sneakers, to be able to to dress, to earn respect. Maybe just write everybody a check now. Now you can buy your sneakers, and it probably cost a lot less than the cost of having to send all those cops through the neighborhood. Right.
1: Yeah, but it's not sneakers. It's I mean, people looking for you know. Again, I think it's a kind of again this tiresome myth that people are just sort of spending. Money willy-nilly. I think people really want—I mean, their aspirations are the same as the rest of us. Yeah. They want some sense of financial So what's security. in the
0: way of that, then? What's in the way of getting that financial security? Well,
1: there are no jobs there. These are communities that are deeply isolated from the rest mm-hmm. of us. These kid, Many of these kids are going to really—
0: But, I mean, the, the economy—if you can't get a job in this economy, then— Forget it, right? And there, are, there's there's public transit. You can hop a bus. And get, isn't part of the problem that if you have a record, you can't get a job? Well, there's that,
1: too. You've got, you know, you come back, you know, again, for a country that likes to think of itself as very forgiving. You know, you you spend time in prison and do your time and you come out with a felony. It's extraordinarily difficult to get jobs. Some, some professions are completely off limits to you. And then given the kind of mass incarceration we've had over the past 25 years, it's made it really difficult, especially in communities of color there is this general agreement across the political spectrum that we've just simply incarcerated far too many people for far too long. Um, and, and it's, I'm, you know, f- feel really good that we've gotten to that place where we've, we've, where we see that. But, Look, again, I think we need to provide some investment in these communities. I think you're wrong about the fact that there are all these jobs for people. I mean, I remember when I was working on this book, at one point there was a factory that was opening, and they had something like 600 people apply for jobs. I mean, there were just lines around the block for people looking to for employment at that at that factory. People want to work. People want a good life. They're not they're they're not inclined to just sit around and mm-hmm. just those opportunities. I, I just, a very quick story. A number of years ago, there was an author, Paul Collier, who used to work at the World Bank, and he wrote this book, The Bottom Billion, about the developing world. Where he what he found is that in places like Chad, where there was just poverty across the board, it was incredibly peaceful. And so he comes to Chicago for the first time and spends some time on the South Side, and he thinks this is it. He says, "You walk out of your house." in Englewood, a community on the south side, and look at this beautiful, gleaming downtown, I think one of the most beautiful downtowns in the world, and you know what's not yours. How can you not help but feel resentful?
0: Well, now we're getting somewhere. So in other words, if this community was in in some poor country and there wasn't that gleaming skyline haunting you every morning, then you wouldn't feel the need to have a lot of money in your pocket?
1: Well, we'll have any money if you're doing well and privileged, you don't look behind. But if you're on the bottom, you're looking at what, what's not yours. And you realize there's no way you're gonna to get to that place. The South Side of Chicago is not the only community that's suffering. You go into parts of West Virginia or rural Missouri, um, and there are people who are also deeply suffering. It's it's why Trump got elected. It's because so many people in rural America, just like the people in the South Side of Chicago, said to themselves, why, why can't I prosper like others in this country?
0: You think the south side of Chicago voted for Trump? No, I don't oh. think they voted
1: for Trump, but I'm just saying yeah. that's, you know.
0: Well, what's the answer to that? That's that's, that's what's frustrating me because that's, that's still out there, and, and yet right. by the numbers and by what we're being told from Washington, this is as good as an economy gets. And if some people are left out, it's because they made bad decisions.
1: But but that's not true. I mean, you look at I mean, JP Morgan is a perfect uh, example. You know, they just reported record profits and and yet their bank tellers are barely making enough money to survive. So the people at the very top are making, you know, extraordinary amounts of money, while the people on the very bottom are barely managing. There's this is incredible. And yet they
0: won't form unions. I mean, once upon a time, when we had a disparity like that, people got together, formed right, unions, right. and basically forced those companies. Right, to. Right.
1: Well, I hope, I hope the labor movement sort of finds <laughs> its strength again.
0: Well, so, it's an yeah. extraordinary book, yeah, and right. I, I think it will change people's perspective on a, on a story that uh, you assume you know the answers until yeah. you actually meet these people and realize that for you know every one of these. 550 murders, there are 550 unique stories. Right, right. Stories. And my
1: hope is that people, as they people get to know the people in this book, that they come to sort of find some empathy, find some common ground.
0: It's called An American Summer, Love and Death in Chicago by Alex Kotlowitz. Alex, thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast and you can subscribe, so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe, and then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.